0: I could not be any happier to have Dr. Cazada here to start off our curriculum. So Dr. Cazada is a friend, a mentor, an ally uh, of mine. She is someone I feel very happy and proud to call a friend. She is an associate professor of medicine who does her time uh, in the GI division. She's also the associate dean for medical school admissions as well as the associate dean for admissions at the School of Medicine. Um, she has tremendous amount of insight into diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, and I've asked her to share her expertise with us here today, and the title of her talk is Great Ideas, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Anti-Racism. I am thrilled to hear you talk, Dr. I can't hear. Uh, I can't wait to hear what you have to share with us. Whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right, awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Levine. And hello, everyone out there. Thanks for carving out some time today for this. Um, I really want to commend Dr. Levine for really intentionally carving out uh, and integrating um, these DEI concepts into your core curriculum. I think it's a real model for um, all training programs to follow. And I know that there are multiple departments and divisions that are sort of simultaneously doing this work. Um, and, and one of the things that we're doing that I'm pretty excited about is learning more about all of the different things going on across departments. And I have the honor of being your, your first speaker on this topic. Um, so, you know, what I hope to do is just sort of lay a foundation for having these discussions moving forward with these uh, subsequent presentations that you're going to have. Um, So I'll go ahead and just jump in. Uh, Full disclosure, I have a meeting at three o'clock, so I will have to hop off right at the sort of three o'clock hour. Hopefully I will move through this quickly enough that we have some time for discussion before that happens. Um, So as Dr. Levine alluded to, what I wanna start off is just going through some definitions. We hear a lot of these words, we use them. And sometimes uh, I can personally say from experience serving on multiple different diversity committees and councils, um, people don't always walk into the room with the same understanding or or expectation of what these words mean. And so I do think it is uh, really, Uh, fundamental for some grounding to kind of make sure that we're all in the same place. And I'm not going to define every word that's relevant to these topics, uh, but I will include in my references a glossary actually of of DEI terms that I find very helpful, that I frequently reference, and I hope will be helpful to you too. Um, I want to talk about the why, why this matters, why this is relevant and important in academic medicine, why it it means a lot that, that this is being included in your training. Um, And then the how, meaning that a lot of the time when we talk about the why, what that means is that we're gonna be focusing on what the issues are, what the problems, the shortcomings are. And and I really wanna move into a space where um, we can also start talking about solutions, start talking about some concrete action and things we can actually do um, to address these problems. Um, And the who we can take care of right now, it's all of us, it's everyone, Um, certainly Um, in this setting and discussion, we're really focusing on what we can do as physicians. Um, And at the end of the day, we are the only ones that can really uh, address uh, bias and or really fight for equity uh, from the physician perspective. Um, So it's really up to all of us to sort of clean our own room so that the whole house is clean, right? So, jumping into some definitions, um, you know, diversity and inclusion. I feel like for, for the longest time it was DNI, i D&I, diversity and inclusion, and people almost using it interchangeably, and they're not the same thing. I'm sure many people here are familiar and comfortable with different ways of defining this. This is one definition I particularly like um, psychological, physical, and social differences. that could occur among any or all individuals. It could include, but not limited to, and you see all of these different sort of dimensions of identity and diversity, such as race, ethnicity, um, religion, socioeconomic status, gender, sexual orientation, mental or physical ability, just as a few examples. Um, And sometimes people like to to remind us that when we talk about diversity, we have a tendency to get hung up on um, what's sort of immediately visible uh, and, and those dimensions of diversity that really are apparent physically at at the surface really and that's what that iceberg model is um, meant to represent here and just to remember that first of all we are all much deeper um, than what is initially visible at the surface um, that we're missing a whole lot if we stop there, Uh, you know just again talking about. Um, nationality, religion, sexual orientation, these are often things that are not immediately visible. Also, just to remember intersectionality and that people can um, have multiple layers of diversity um, and and that we shouldn't sort of try to peg people into in certain boxes or categories, that these things are fluid uh, and um, multidimensional and actually that's what the river model um, some people like to use on the right is just kind of recognizing because the iceberg is so static that you know rivers are constantly moving and changing, evolving. And so are we, you know, we, we change over time, our identities may change. Um, we also are impacted by the environment that we're in just as much as we also shape and influence the environment around us. Um, so that's what these two images are meant to represent. So then moving to inclusion, um, this is uh, for, by UC Berkeley. Um, they have a Center for Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity. Um, they define it as the act of creating environments in which any individual or group can feel welcomed, respected, supported, and fully participate. Um, and it embraces differences and offers respect in words and action for all people. And Renee Myers is actually a, a well-known thought leader in the DI space. She's actually a Baltimore native, um, Harvard-trained, and I like that she calls herself a recovering lawyer. Um, but, uh, she, she coined the phrase that some people may have heard diversity is being invited to the party while inclusion is being asked to dance. Um, I often like to say, I think even better inclusion is to be invited to be on the planning party for the next co- party planning committee for the next party. So you can decide when it's happening, what music is going to be played, etc. cetera. Um, all right, now equity and equality are two other terms that I often hear used interchangeably, but again, they're not the same. Um, you know, I think they are very much though similar in their spirit. I think that they are often people, when people use these words, they're getting at fairness. Um, but uh, usually when we're talking about equal things, or equality, it's about giving the same access or the same opportunity to, to everybody. And that would be equal, you know, equal access, equal opportunity, you hear these terms. Equity though is different. And again, I, I come back to UC Berkeley for their definition because I think it's fantastic. So it is about fairness, right? It's the fair treatment and access and opportunity while at the same time identifying and eliminating barriers that have prevented the full participation of some groups. And it acknowledges that there are historically underserved and underrepresented populations and that fairness regarding these unbalanced conditions is needed in order to then be able to equally provide these opportunities. So basically, there is no real equality unless you start to address what the underlying um, disadvantages and disparities, marginalization historically has been, and, and oftentimes continues to be the case. Um, there are some great cartoons online about this, and I'll start off right away by saying I don't love this one. Um, it was one of the first ones that I came across, and I used to show it because I would say, you know, on the left, this is equality everyone is getting the equal support or access for the desired outcome which is to see the ball game whereas on the right we have equity recognizing that the same support isn't really you know it's not one size fits all it's not really going to work for everyone and that different supports might be necessary for different people or groups to be able to achieve the outcome The the main things I don't love about this cartoon in particular is it sort of implies that you have to take away from one individual in order to give it to the other individual, which is communicating a totally incorrect message, equity uh, is not a pie, it's not like you run out of it when you give pieces to other people. Also. I don't like that this is actually really reinforcing a deficiency theory. It's sort of suggesting there's something wrong with that individual that needs to be addressed or corrected um, rather than recognizing really what the truth often is, is that it's the environment um, that is unequal and is what needs to be addressed. And so that's why I really like this version much better where you see all three individuals really have the same potential uh, for being able to see over the fence to watch the ball game, but certainly their environment is not the same. You you see the sort of the the plunging ground and the the right raising fence, this barrier that continues to grow and is more significant the farther you go to the right. So then what you're really doing is you're accounting for those environmental inequities essentially to be able to then make sure everyone at the end of the day now has really the same fair opportunity to watch the game. So that's equity versus equality. And as I was looking around and I, you know, I, I always like to find new images or updated images, I like this one because it kind of throws into the mix justice as well. And we, we've heard so much and have been talking so much about justice and social justice. And I really appreciated this image because again, when it starts off with differentiating between equality and equity, whereas in the top right, you give the same support, the same ladder, but you're still not getting the same outcome because of this crooked tree and there's more apples on one side. So the individual, even though they have the same ladder, they're still not really getting the same outcome. Um, Whereas in equity, again, because of the, the, the environment being unequal, then we're adjusting for that and we're making it so that this individual now they can actually reach one of the apples. Justice says, well, why does the tree have to be crooked? right? Why do there have to be more apples on one side than the other? Justice is really going farther upstream and thinking about systemic level um, differences, uh, injustices, inequities, policies, practices that are creating the environment such that we need to, you know, like accommodate for and try to make all these additional adjustments. Um, And I'll get more uh, back to that later. And then so the last uh, letter and idea was A for anti-racism. And certainly we've heard and talked so much more about that in the last year and a half, I would say. Um, And so, you know, what is an anti-racist? And if you're going to talk about that, you know, we would even should probably should define what is racism and or, or what does it mean to be racist? And then what even is race? Uh, and so I, and it's important that we talk about this. Certainly last year, multiple medical societies um, across the country declared racism as a public health crisis. So if we're truly treating this as a crisis, we should know what we're talking about and what we mean. Um, and I go straight to the definitions from Dr. Kendi um, in his book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, he jumps right into this. Um, and so, um, you know, a racist, there's a racist individual versus a racist policy or practice. So if we're talking about a racist individual, it's somebody supporting a racist policy by their action or their inaction. So I always find that important um, or expressing a racist idea and a racist policy or practice is really any measure that is either producing or sustaining inequity across racial groups. So this is something, again, that could be happening explicitly, or it could be by omission, by the lack of any intention to make sure that there is not difference across racial groups. And so one who is anti-racist is supporting anti-racist policies and ideas, And these anti-racist policies or practices would be any measure that is producing and or sustaining equity across racial groups. So since we're talking so much about racial groups, um, you know, what is race? I love love doing this because at any time in a room say like, so who wants to define race? You know, define it. There's a long pause, a lot of silence kind of process and think about how do I define race? What does that mean? um how is it defined right so um you know and i i give a whole other talk just you know i could spend a whole hour talking about just this one topic so i will get straight to the punchline um the punchline being uh and and i started off by you know looking at a lot of different resources to see how they define race Um, I ended up at the National Human Genome Research Institute, which I thought was very interesting. First, to remind everyone that, you know, it's been uh, 20 years or over 20 years now that we've known that across the entire globe, all humans are 99.9% genetically identical. The uh, 0.1% that is not identical does not fit neatly into different racial categories. Um, So then to remember that um, race is not genetically defined. It's important for us in medicine because oftentimes we set things up in discussion, in research, in cases, as if we think that there are genetic drivers that, are, that fit into racial boxes. Uh, and actually, I thought that the NIH, um, the, the Genome Institute really did a nice job of, ex, of saying race is a fluid concept um, and it's been used to group people. Um, and that essentially, if we get to the, the end, it is an ideology And many scientists believe race should be more accurately described as a social construct and not a biological one. Um, If you go through um, historically, you'll see race uh, really was first um, documented probably in the 1400s or so. And it was in the context of slavery. And of course, slavery existed well before that, for millennia before that, and people from all over the globe have been enslaved at those early times, but it was right around the 1400s when peoples from West Africa were actually exclusively enslaved and traded. And so there were documentations about describing these people from this part of the world and framing it such that they seemed as if they were almost a different species. Um, and that, you know, describing not only physical attributes, but also, you um, making uh, you know, statements about intellectual capacity and about behavior and really trying to create a, uh, a scenario where slave owners and traders could feel maybe less guilty about what they were doing and feel almost justified in this practice of slavery. Um, This is more recent than the 1400s. In 1700s, some may have heard of Carl Linnaeus. Um, He proposed that there were four races. This is one of the more common um, ideologies around race that was accepted um, at that time. And and until I would argue fairly recently, people often uh, believed in, but but there are many, many theories out there. People would say there are 15 races or only a, a, a handful of races, but he proposed that there were four races And it's also, not only was it originally proposed and discussed in the context of slavery, it's always only ever been uh, discussed in a hierarchical form and really establishing a power dynamic where at the top of this hierarchy sits the white race, everybody else is basically beneath that. Um, And you can see here, this was the structure that Carl Linnaeus uh, proposed. So homo sapiens europeus has flowing blonde hair and blue eyes and is smart, whereas Homo sapiens, um, Asiaticus is stern and greedy, ruled by opinion, Homo sapiens Afro is sluggish and lazy uh, and uh, careless and and described, you know, physical, again, physical and behavioral descriptions. Homo sapiens Americanus was intended to refer to like indigenous uh, race of ill-tempered and impassive and harsh face and stubborn, et cetera. In cetera. In my research on these um, topics, I also came across the word Caucasian. And I um, have been somebody who uh, described my, my patients, I use that word. Um, frequently, and I really never knew exactly what it meant or where it came from, and so as I kind of did more digging, um, then I learned that it actually was also proposed um, by a white supremacist theorist um, who felt that the white race was superior to all other races, um, who happened to be in the Caucasus Mountains, which extend from Europe into Asia, and saw these people here who were blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and Documented and proposed that these were the most beautiful and godlike people that he'd ever seen and named them Caucasians. And then this is where this term came from. So, in any case, I would like to propose if you haven't already stop using the word Caucasian, I don't say it anymore. Um, I say white or I say of European um, heritage, whatever the, you know, whatever is um, more accurate and appropriate and it means what, we're, what we mean. Um, but in, in many of these, um, you know, different structures and, and attempts to define race, both with these physical and uh, behavioral uh, descriptions, Really, there was a suggestion that this is about inheritance and that this is um, biologically defined. And it's again, we already know, I think everyone is at a place now that they were under, had that understanding that race is a social identity, it's a social construct, um, and that most people really don't have one race. If you've been, done your 23 year or whatever, if we were to do um, actual genetic um, studies, almost everybody actually has multiple ethnicities or races in their genetic makeup. Um, So even though we don't have a precise definition oftentimes for race, it has had tremendous impact and has granted power to some uh, and really has impacted all of us. And I love Dr. Kendi's definition that he uses, which is race is a power construct um, of collected or merged difference that lives socially, um, and we we've seen obviously there, there you know in the U.S. race and racism are are unfortunately really still p- problematic in many ways. Racism we've seen um, you know the anti-Asian racism also in the last in the last year really seem to to pick up. Uh, we have. Hispanic Heritage Month coming up soon, and so I wanted to mention Dr. Gomez. Um, She's the author of Inventing Latinos, A New Story of American Racism. And here she shares some very interesting history lesson um, that we don't get taught about US history, um, that Arizona and New Mexico were actually not even recognized formally as states of the US until 1912 because there were just too many Mexicans and Indian Americans in that area. And one of the, one of the uh, legislators, Secretary of State James Buchanan, was documented to say, how should we govern the mongrel race which inhabits the Mexican lands? Could we even admit them to the seats in our House or our Senate, of Rep- uh, Senate or House of Representatives? Are they capable of self-government as states of this Confederacy? And to this day, you could say that Puerto Rico is essentially an American colony um, and has not had a general election, uh, voting rights from the islands. There actually was a referendum this past November um, where Puerto Rico did vote uh, and said they do want to have state status and we're still waiting to see how that will now be addressed um, by our government. So moving on to uh, the why and why we're talking about this is as physicians and, and as people who are responsible for the lives of other humans. Um, you know, Dr. King, I think, said it very well. Of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. Um, and really, in academic medicine, we have, I believe, you know, four main areas. We have patient care. We're responsible for patients. We're responsible for teaching the future physician workforce. Um, we are responsible for the research, oftentimes that comes out, particularly clinical research. And we also, whether we wanna recognize it or not, we do have an impact in our community. We have, um, we either by omission or intentionally we engage with the community. And so these are four areas in which we, we should be thinking about what is my role and how am I, how am I um, making sure that I'm really trying to be someone who is a proponent of equity and justice in all these spaces. Uh, we already know that there are disparities uh, in multiple disease processes by race. Certainly in COVID-19 was a wonderful accelerated um, example that just played out before our very eyes that showed how social determinants of health are really are killing people and are setting people up for these disparities. It is not an accident, it is not really hard to predict who are the groups that are gonna be um, at highest risk for the worst outcomes. Um, And when we look to um, bias in our own uh, practice and in our education, for example, Um, We know that there are differences in how we treat patients, actually. This has been well-documented that analgesia has not been administered equitably or equally even um, across race and that Black patients are less likely to receive the analgesia that they need. Um, These are a couple examples, um, whether in the Department of Anesthesia uh, for labor or in the emergency department. Uh, And there was actually a study out of the University of Virginia where they uh, surveyed medical students and residents about their beliefs, about um, whether or not there were differences in sensation and skin thickness, um, blood coagulation in white patients versus black patients. And they found that there was a significant proportion of students. And this study was done only about seven years ago. So we're not talking about like a 1950s study. It was relatively recent study where people who are out there practicing now essentially um, had beliefs that black patients have thicker skin, don't feel as much pain as white patients. And again, if you go back and you see the way we're administering pain medication, you can see where that comes from. So these, these beliefs that we bring in to medicine, unless we're doing the job as medical educators to undo them, to to make sure that we're being very clear and explicit about what is true, about what is scientific, and how we should be treating our patients, um, then our patients are going to suffer for that. Uh, here are some examples too of how uh, race, basically, how medicine has been racialized, um, and many of you have. Uh, You're familiar with the the report that comes out when you get blood work and it says, you know, the African-American GFR and there are a few hospitals now in the country that have moved away from that, but most hospitals, including ours, still have that report. And, you know, in in medical school, no one ever explained to me why that was the case. Um, You just sort of were like, oh, okay, I guess that's different. And I guess I should be looking at that number. I'm happy to say that we are addressing this, that we we, we have um, basically done the work of understanding, where did this even come from? And it comes from a very antiquated, again, uh, essentially white supremacist theory, thinking again that the black, othering the black race and thinking that they're biologically different, that black patients are different, that essentially that all black patients have higher muscle mass than literally anybody else. And so that's a whole other thing. I'm Latina, I am not black, I am not white. Where do I fall into this? You know, What does my GFR come up? It comes up as a white patient, right? So in any case, it's completely ludicrous to think that all black patients have a higher muscle mass than everybody else. It doesn't scientifically make sense. And in real time, what's happening is it actually is overestimating the kidney function of black patients. And unfortunately what you're left with then uh, can be essentially a uh, delay in transplant listing for patients who ultimately are gonna need a kidney transplant. Um, Here's a hypothetical case where if your patient has a creatinine of 2.8, their GFR, if they were white, would be 18, which is just low enough to be listed for transplant. But if they're black, then it's 21 and that's above the threshold. So then they won't be listed for transplant. And we know that there are huge disparities in kidney transplantation. This isn't the only reason, but this surely is not helping. Um, And again, it's not even scientific. It's not um, aligned with what we know to be true. And so the good news is that this, One of the good things that came out of 2020 is that there is now a national task force that actually has the two major nephrology societies, the National Kidney Foundation and American Society of Nephrology, have formed a task force to try to figure out what are we going to do about this? You know, how do we, what is the new formula going to be? Um, You know, should it even be a formula that sort of spurts out one number or should we be looking at a range and that people should look at the patient and assess whether, you know, what their muscle mass estimate is this high, low, medium muscle mass, and then work with that range. So, so there's, the last update I got was literally a few days ago that we think that there are gonna be some recommendations forthcoming, hopefully very soon. We also here at the University of Maryland Medical Center formed our own task force, which included our transplant nephrologists, our nephrologists, um, faculty in family medicine, so some of the primary care faculty as well, and the lab, you know, our, our um, pathologists to, to look at this. And so mainly because we just didn't wanna wait. If it was gonna take this task force, you know, a year or two years to come up with a recommendation, that's too many lives impacted for us to wait. And so we already have a plan. We are ready to set in place. But now that we heard that the national task force will be coming out soon with their recs, um, we're gonna hang tight for a bit to hear that. But Nonetheless, one way or the other, expect a change coming in how the GFR is going to be reported. And this should hit close to home for, um, for everyone in this on this call. Probably many of you, I would think, have seen this uh, paper that was published last year in the New England Journal about basically the discrepancy between what one's Um, oxygen saturation appears to be by pulse oximetry versus what it really is on arterial blood gases. Um, Because the pulse oximeter is basically looking through, uh, you know, shining a light to detect the color of of the um, blood through your skin, um, there, you know, it could be your nail polish or it could be darker skin that interferes with that interpretation, that number. And in this particular study, what they found was that consistently, um, Black patients three times more so than white patients were at risk for what they were calling occult hypoxemia, where essentially, the pulse oximeter was giving a report of something like anywhere from 92 to 96%, when in reality, their arterial oxygenation was less than 88%. And so, especially now in the setting of COVID-19, where we're using and need this information, uh, we are, you know, our patients are at risk for hypoxemia and we don't even realize it. There was a commentary, a letter to the editor about this paper after it was published, um, essentially saying, you can't call this racism. This is a problem with the device. And, um, you know, just to be careful, you know, people are throwing around the word systemic racism, and, and you shouldn't use that in this particular scenario. And the response to that was um, there are both explicit and implicit biases. Racism basically is a bias of race, and it could be certainly explicit or implicit. And they were never suggesting that this was explicit, that there was an intentional um, uh, defect created to, to result in these differences in, in the functionality of this device for black patients. Um, but the reality is people have known about this discrepancy for a long time. And the fact that this has not been addressed, that we don't have a better tool, that to me, I would argue, is a little more explicit uh, in terms of what your priorities are. Um, the good news that I heard, at least most recently, is the FDA, I think it was officially in February of this year, announced that they are sort of reevaluating the Pulse Oximeter or maybe hopefully working on approving a new device. Who knows how long that's going to take? Um, but again, I think it's a it's a good example of us to remembering that, you know, even despite our best intentions, if we don't ask these questions and if we don't learn about what is sort of built into the devices that we're using, the the policies that are governing and dictating what our patients can or cannot do, um, then unfortunately sometimes we're just sort of moving along and allowing these things to perpetuate. So it's important that we at least be aware of these things and and advocate for them to change. Um, And that's just about the FDA. And it's not only for our patients, it's, it's also for the profession. We, we know that we have a lack of diversity in medicine and a lack of inclusion. So people are not being invited to the party and then they get there and they're not being asked to dance either. Um, this is actually on the left a uh, chart from the AAMC, where you see the U.S. Uh, medical school deans from 1991, so 30 years of data, basically, of U.S. medical school deans. Um, The green are the non-underrepresented in medicine, interim or acting deans, and the blue are all of the underrepresented in medicine. The usually underrepresented in medicine for the AAMC includes Black, Hispanic or Latinx, and Native American or Indigenous populations. Um, So in 30 years, uh, not a lot of progress. Here at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, we have a lot of work to do, as you can see the whole nation does. And in our, you have 25 different departments. Of these 25 departments, we have 22 male department chairs um, and 23 of them, of the chairs are white. And the, the two women, two of the women chairs and one chair who's a, who's a person of color were actually named chair within the last five years. So these are recent changes. Um, and the good news, I would argue, is that we are hopefully quickly moving, we're, we've, we've made a pivot here and we're moving in a direction where we're going to see more of these changes um, because of there's that now awareness. And actually, that's been a couple of years now, as you can say, uh, five years ago that we re- recognized this, this needs to change. Um, So that work is being done, but we also need to address other things, uh, including disparities in salary and promotion across both gender and race. Um, In my role as assistant dean for faculty diversity and inclusion, I've been meeting with our department chairs to learn more about the work that's going on, and I'm happy to report that many of our department chairs are doing uh, salary studies within their own departments and working with our dean's office to, to rectify inequities that they find. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm also the associate dean for admissions. So talking about medical students and admissions is, is near and dear to my heart. Uh, and again, here's just another slide where you see not a whole lot of progress or change in terms of diversity. Of medical school graduates, um, this chart on the left is t- a 10-year span from 2002 to 2012. The pie on the right is more recent, uh, from 2018 to 2019. At least it seems to me that we're starting to see a little bit more, a little bit more diversity in the applicant pool. I feel like I've seen that in, in our applications, uh, but we have a long way to go. And why do we not have that diversity in the applicant pool? Well, I would argue it's for the same reasons that we see health disparities in our community, that there is underlying systemic racism that basically predispose certain groups and communities to have access and opportunity to thrive and to be healthy. Um, and redlining, I think is one of the best examples of how a systemic policy can literally by design set up groups of people to, um, uh, to basically have unequal access and to be marginalized. Um, and Baltimore was the, the first place where this was implemented. They're certainly not the only or last place, other cities across the country followed the example that was set here. Um, it impacted both black and Jewish communities in Baltimore. Um, And ultimately though, it it had a longer lasting impact on on black communities. And you you probably have heard of the the black butterfly, here are the butterfly wings uh, versus the white L and the L sort of going down the middle of the city and down towards the Harbor being the area where black families were not allowed to buy homes or banks would not lend, loans to uh, Black families in, or- in order to support, you know, finance their-, their home. Real estate agents would not even show uh, any homes to Black families. And it was a truly a multi-cross systemic sort of everyone in cahoots to, to reinforce the-, the practice of this policy. Uh, and even after it became illegal uh, to do redlining, you know, here we are, we're still seeing a lot of the downstream effects of that. And it's been uh, a a huge barrier for many of our patient population here in Baltimore. And that's why I bring this up because we are here practicing medicine in Baltimore. Many of our patients are in these communities, in these neighborhoods that have been denied um, access to healthy food, to good jobs, to, to good transportation, to get to your clinic visit. They have to take, you know, bus you know, it took them like two hour bus rides to get to see you. So just to, to remember that and to keep that in mind and that all of these things at the end of the day, this is why we see racial disparities. It's not, the, it's not a genetic explanation. It's because that we are seeing these are communities that are navigating multiple confluent, um, confluent barriers uh, and ultimately having these negative outcomes in their own health. Um, and here you can overlay you know, this is unemployment. You can again see the black butterfly versus the white L and here's poverty. So let's talk about the how, you know, we, we, we hopefully are all on the same page about the what and the why and and the how is the hard part. You know, um, I was actually listening to the radio yesterday and Praz it, it was probably, he's a musician, hip hop artist, probably best known for being a member of the Fugees. Um, And so a 90s song came on the radio and the line was, some got hopes and dreams, we got ways and means. And I was like, oh, that's what I'm talking about. Right now, we're still in hopes and dreams, right? We're all on, I think, on the same page in terms of our vision of what we wanna see. We understand that we have problems and we want to address them, but what are the ways and the means Right? So what are the actual strategies? What are the actions we're going to do to address that? Uh, And I would argue, you know, a lot of time we get into these conversations and people sort of throw their hands up and they're like, it's too much. You know, you just talked about all the, you know, food and housing and transportation. I don't, I can't fix that. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm the doctor. I can't, I'm not responsible for that either. And it's too complex and it's too big. And so first I would say, I would argue, we do complex all day. That's our job. We have a strategy. We've been taught to take a history, to to ask the critical questions, to understand the underlying explanation for what it is, for for what's happening, um, to really look at data, to try to be objective and look at data, and then let the data within the context of that history and that story help us determine what is our action plan gonna be? What are we gonna do to make those changes? That's how we take care of our complex patients. And I think it's how we're gonna take care of these complex problems. Um, And in order to do that, one of the things we have to start with again is just acknowledging our own implicit and, and explicit biases that we may have. And honestly, in the work that I've been doing, I have to say that I think it's the positive biases that tend to be the most problematic. It's not that people have these overt or, or even, um, you know, they may, they may even acknowledge, oh, I have an implicit bias, um, with respect to race or with respect to religion. What, what, you know, pick a, pick your, your identity. Um, but, The thing is that I'm like, but I don't do, I'm not doing anything negative directly against that group. I feel good because I know I've never hurt anyone. Like people are too much focusing on the negative and not realizing that there are positive biases for who are the people that are usually benefiting from your decisions. Um, One of my favorite things, um, and actually came up in a recent conversation too, Favorite things, and, and my favorite. I hope it's clear that I'm being facetious. It's my least favorite thing that people say when they're talking about any kind of a selection process, and they they say, well, we had to pick the best person, you know, we we picked the best person for whatever the job, the the fellowship position, you know, the whatever it is. Um, and it's like, well, so let's start talking about how do you define that? What is best to you? And um, and it's interesting when you start to get people to really break that down and realize that there's a type. And so then they're going for that that type, which to them they have all these positive associations with and they'll realize how they're excluding and leaving others out who actually might even be better or certainly just as good in, in on some levels, but bring other um, diverse perspectives and lived experiences that are important to incorporate into our discussion. So to be aware of our biases, to reflect on them, uh, try to understand where they come from, but most importantly, just to say, how am I gonna interrupt them? how am I gonna disrupt this and make sure that I'm not just sort of, you know, letting letting things happen by, uh, by exclusion, essentially. And, and as I said, we have to ask some important and critical questions. We're gonna to have to look at our own data. So for example, maybe you know, somebody might be wondering about, you know, pick any outcome in the ICU, uh, you know, maybe, um, I don't know, mortality uh, in patients with sepsis. And is there a difference in our ICU by race, in mortality in patients who come in with sepsis? And if the answer is, I don't know, it's not because we don't have the data. It's because somebody hasn't asked that question and done it, right? We, we could process that data, Uh, And if we did that, then maybe we'll find some answers that we realize that help us understand that we have work to do, that we need need to address that. I just made that up. I don't know if that's the case, but it's to give and illustrate an example of how any one of us could simply just start asking these questions. Is there a difference by race? Is there a difference by gender? Is there a difference by age, by abilities, et cetera, by socioeconomic status in my patient outcomes and if I find that difference, then, then I, I can't leave that there, right? We have to start working with people and reach out for help, figure out how are we going to address that. And basically form an action plan. Um, so since since I, you know, I'm in admissions, um, I'll explain what are some of the things that I did. I already talked about the problem with diversity in medicine, and we know that we don't have we haven't had. Um, diverse medical school classes, and particularly with respect to those who are underrepresented in medicine. So as soon as I assumed the role, I noticed, well, we don't have a diverse admissions committee. So maybe that's part of it. It's not the only part of the problem, but it could be one thing. And so let's diversify the committee. Let's make ourselves more aware of our own biases and have implicit bias training for all the committee members and for all of our interviewers. Um, and let's like have real discussions about, again, who is the best person? What is What really aligns with our values about who we believe will be the best doctor? Is it really the MCATs? that tells me who's going to be the best doctor? Um, Probably not. In fact, definitely not. Um, And what are the, again, the lived experiences that we want to have in the physicians who are then taking care of our patients? Um, So really having those um, discussions intentionally and then being able to just welcome that back into the discussion every time we were considering an applicant. And just, again, recognizing that we don't have enough students who are underrepresented in medicine being very proactive about correcting that. And we wanna see more underrepresented students um, in in our medical school. And um, and through, you know, and sort of summarizing there, but through that work, you do see results and you do see changes. And when, you know, several years back in 2015, when we only had 9% of who were underrepresented in medicine, Um, was really sad. You know, that was actually less than what the applicant pool was at that time. Um, 2018 and 19 was when we really implemented a lot of these changes. And so the class that entered in 2020, I feel is where it really started to see those results um, with 24% being underrepresented in medicine. And this August, we matriculated a class that's 31% underrepresented in medicine. So if you actually do the work and and make intentional efforts, um, you do create change, it is is doable. And I only include this because people have these questions and it's unfortunate. Um, And anyone who's on Twitter probably saw that article in the Journal of the American Heart Association where they were talking about cardiology fellowship and saying, well, in order to diversify the cardiology um, profession, we're gonna have to uh, basically, you know that, that you're basically sacrificing merit in order to uh, have diversity, and that's another thing that you hear over, even still, I hear over and over again that well, look, we're looking for again the best person, the the one who is meritorious. In any case, just just for the record that this class, if this is what's important to you is just as quote unquote meritorious. And I would argue is that much more so. We have many, many amazing students who have overcome unbelievable challenges um, and and, and frankly, unjust life um, situations who bring now a tremendous resilience and and insight uh, into medicine that I think our patients will definitely benefit from. Uh, I wanted people to know that we have already publicly available on the on the uh, World Wide Web, a diversity dashboard, which is a live and interactive tool where at any time you can look at the diversity of any of our departments or divisions, even Um, when you first if you actually just Google University of Maryland diversity dashboard, it will First, be sort of a static image. Actually, it's actually this picture, which just shows you the the whole across all departments put together in aggregate. But if you hit on the left, it'll say live interactive tool. And if you hit that, then you'll see that you have the freedom to really sort of toggle different things by department by division. And, um, you know, you can, and it's a it's for our own accountability, right to be transparent about this is where we are. It's not where we want to be, but we're not going to really know if we're ever getting there without tracking this, and so it's 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 a beginning, I would argue, of hopefully moving in the direction that we want to move in. Uh, we also, when we talk about hiring faculty and you know talking about policy, sometimes the lack of policy, right, the lack of having a practice or a policy that ensures equity is therefore inequitable, right? And so because we're just by default going to keep doing the same things the same way that we've always been doing them and have the same outcome. And so uh, we've established an equity faculty search policy. Um, Many of you are familiar with our educational content review committee, uh, which actually both Dr. Levine and I um, both serve on where we're reviewing the medical education content for the medical students to try to interrupt whatever biases that we see and also make sure that we're really inculcating um, thoughtful, thorough discussion on social determinants of health um, throughout the curriculum. And so it's, you know, it's a huge lift, but it's been, I think, really valuable and amazing. And, And I've heard actually that in some departments, they're working on this as well for their curriculum now for residents and fellows, which is really awesome. So some things we can do right now, but we can certainly start thinking critically about how and why we include race in any case discussion and remembering it that we should be including this if we are, that it should be in a social context um, and that we should be prepared to talk about the social determinants of health uh, when we talk about race and that we should be ready to talk about racism if we're gonna talk about race because that's the whole point of why race even was brought up to begin with. Um, and any other biases, right? Race is one example, but when any that we see a, and bring up other potential um, identifiers or if we identify biases to just think about why they're there and, and be very thoughtful about that discussion, I would, I would support that we just can stop using the word Caucasian. We have some better options. Um, Hopefully we will soon be no more seeing the African-American GFR and there's more to come, um, hopefully very soon on that. And in your own spaces, on committees that you serve on, in your division, um, uh, when you go to a conference and you see a speaker panel, notice, pay attention and see, are these areas and groups diverse? And if not, ask, why not? Or suggest a diverse participant um, that, or, or candidate that um, can help to bring more of that diverse thought uh, into that space. We can support and work with our chapters of White Coats for Black Lives. We have a student diversity council and a minority health staff organization, um, which are very dynamic and active. And so making sure that we're connecting with those groups, supporting them. And and I think as faculty and as fellows, they would love to see um, you all as leaders and, and mentors that also are allies in this work. Um, We are currently working on identifying what we're calling a DEI champion within all of our departments across the School of Medicine to really kind of help make sure that there's consistency in the the level of dedication and work that's being done um, on these issues across the entire institution. We actually, I've been meeting with, uh, they're actually social workers who are Epic gurus and um, they've already incorporated a social determinants of health wheel um, that is in Epic. It's a tool uh, where you can, either anyone can enter it. So maybe like the the nurse who's doing intake at the clinic could do this. Um, You can also update this information, but basically it allows you to identify throughout different areas such as food or housing or income, um, whether there might be a, you know, there should be an alarm or a flag that triggers maybe a social work consult or also referrals for some of our social services that we have in the city. Um, so that there's also, you know, a bridge to addressing, not just like, oh, this person has this problem, but then what do I do about that? Um, and actually CRISP, has a wonderful social services tool where you can actually enter um, what the the issue is that you're you're looking to address and even I believe the zip code of the patient so they can get sort of geographically accessible resources. So just something to think about that we should be incorporating more into our practice. Um, And then also advocating for upstream systemic change uh, to support justice again, thinking about those policies and tools, and as a gastroenterologist, um, you know, colonoscopy is an interesting thing, right? We know that there's a disparity in colon cancer and in colonoscopy uh, overall, and oftentimes people say, like, oh, well, you know, some groups uh, are you know hesitant and don't want to get this done, um, but we have literally designed, we have a system that is excluding lower socioeconomic status individuals from getting colonoscopy. Why? As it turns out, if you have Medicare, for example, it will cover the cost of your colonoscopy until you get a polyp removed. And and this was the case. If you got polyps removed, you were slammed with a huge copay, about 20% of the cost of the procedure, which is in the thousands. Um, So fortunately, this past um, February, I believe it was, finally, Congress passed the, I can't remember the exact name of the act, but it's like um, Equal Access or Opportunity to Colonoscopy Act, where Medicare will now cover all of that um, so that patients will no longer be slammed with this copay, because as you can imagine, somebody who who has polyps gets slammed with this copay. It was like, I'm not doing that again, or I can't afford to do that again. Uh, What we still have to work on is Medicaid does not universally cover uh, colonoscopy for colon cancer screening. It depends on the state. So in some states it does, in other states it doesn't. Once again, our patients who are poor uh, and who these services are supposed to be helping are not giving them the support that they need to be able to get colon cancer screening. So what does that mean for me? That means I need to be advocating for that. That means I need to be going to um, legislature and fighting for that. And, and actually the, the change that I just mentioned to you about covering the cost of polypectomy is only because that's what's been happening. Um, so you know, think about and learn about what are the, the injustices and the things that are happening in the critical care space What are some of the policies either that don't exist or that need to change? Um, And many national organizations oftentimes are really good about organizing advocacy days and training you um, to help you um, have these conversations with with legislators. They wanna hear from us as physicians, as the people who are um, in the trenches doing the work. Um, We are much more compelling um, uh, than them arguing this about it amongst themselves. I will end with this quote. And I realize I, I talked longer than I meant to, but I have to share this quote because I love it. Um, and it's from the letter from Birmingham jail. I must confess that over the past few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux planner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative piece, which is the absence of tension, to a positive piece, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, Who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the negro to wait for a more convenient season shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection so being anti-racist is all about not being lukewarm it's about being proactive action oriented um and again i think we should be anti-biased and proactive on multiple dimensions and levels. These are some resources that were helpful to me. This was that glossary that I mentioned. And if you haven't seen Dorothy Roberts' TED Talk Talk on the problem with race-based medicine, I highly encourage you to check it out.